Good morning, everyone. If you don't know me, my name is Eric. I'm the pastor here at the Bridge Church. And this year, we have been going through the story of the Bible as a church over the course of the year. And just to clarify, when I refer to the Bible as a story, I'm not saying it's not true. The Bible is absolutely true. What I'm referring to is the fact that these true events are, are narrated to us in such a way that there's tension and drama and progress that's building towards something. And so last week, we looked at the classic story arc. We'll put it back on the screen in case you've forgotten it. Can we go to the next slide? There we go. So that's the classic story arc. Every, every story has an opening scene. There's building tension and crisis up to the climax, which is the turning point of the story. And then there's the resolution. And once the climax is passed, you know how the story is going to end. And we saw last week, the death and resurrection of Jesus is the climax of the Bible's story. We said, once this event happens, once Jesus has died and risen from the dead, you know how the story of the Bible is going to end. God wins. Sin and death are conquered. Sinful humanity can get back into God's presence through Jesus. It's a happy ending to this story. And typically, with most stories, once you pass the climax, the big obstacles have been dealt with. They're in the past. You're just waiting to see how everything turns out. And it usually doesn't take that long to get from the climax to the end of the story. In some books, it's really just a page or two. Some, it's a little bit longer. But in light of that understanding of how stories work, that once you pass the climax, there's usually not that much longer to go before you get to the ending. There, there are some wrong understandings we could have about how the story of the Bible works and how we fit into it today. For example, you could assume, well, once the climax is passed, the story is essentially over, especially now that 2,000 years have gone by, that there's nothing left in the story other than just waiting for this happily ever after. Or maybe a variation of that is to think the story is so fundamentally changed through Jesus and what he did that we're almost living in a new story that's totally different and disconnected from the story we've been looking at so far this year. Or a second error would be to see us as still living in the story, but to think that since Jesus has already done everything necessary to win the victory, there's really nothing left for us to do, right? It's all him, not us. What we do doesn't really matter anymore. Or a third error is to assume maybe there is something left for us to do. But if there is, then, then we must have the power within ourselves to do what needs to be done. Because God wouldn't call us to do something that we're not able to do through our own power, right? So we must have the power within ourselves to do the things that he wants us to do. And today's passage that we're looking at actually addresses all of these errors and corrects our understanding of them so that we can see what it looks like to live properly in God's story today. And what we're going to see is that God invites us to live in his story with his help today. We'll see that the story isn't over. We have a part to play and we need help. So let's pray and then jump into the passage. Father, we thank you for this invitation to live in your story today. Thank you for Jesus and the work that he did and the assurance that we have that, that for those who trust in you, this story is one that has a happy ending where, where we will actually live happily ever after God. That deep desire that's in all of our hearts will come true. But God, I pray that you would teach us as we look at your word today, what it means for us to live properly today in light of that reality, the past reality of what Jesus has done for us and the future reality of who we will be as your children. God, speak to us, show us who you are, show us who you want us to be in light of that. In Jesus' name, amen. So first, the story isn't over. Like I said, the first error we might be tempted to believe 
is that the story of what God's doing in the world is essentially over, or at least that it's been so deeply and fundamentally changed through Jesus that it's essentially a new story. Since the climax is past, we're just waiting for the page that says, and they all lived happily ever after and getting to be part of that. Or, or maybe this, the second part of this idea, the, the idea that the story is so deeply changed that it's fundamentally a new story. You know, that's actually becoming more and more prevalent in many circles of churches today. There's been a movement that's been growing in the past few years, led by some pastors, which is really scary and discouraging, that, that's saying basically that the church needs to unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. Their argument goes that the Old Testament is primarily about laws and judgment and harsh commands, but in the New Testament, it's focusing so much more on God's love for us, which is what we really should be emphasizing, right? Right? And so to go back to those laws and commands and that harshness, it puts unnecessary barriers in the ways of people trusting in Jesus. And since what Jesus did is so much newer, so much better, we should just get rid of the old baggage and only focus on Jesus, which might sound appealing, but actually as we jump into today's passage, we see that that's not the case at all. The story of God's work in history is not over. It hasn't changed so drastically and fundamentally that it's become something fundamentally different. The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, it's the same God working in the same way to rescue humanity. The New Testament is the continuation of the same story that's been going on ever since the beginning in the Old Testament. The same God doing the same things. Yes, it's a new chapter in the story, but it's the same story. And so as we come to today's passage, Jesus, he has died. He has risen from the dead. He has ascended back into heaven to sit at the Father's right hand and rule the universe from there. And right before he ascended, between the resurrection and the ascension, he had 40 days where he came back and he hung out with his disciples and he kept teaching them about the kingdom of God. And, and during that time, his disciples fell into this trap of believing the story is over now. See, they knew that Jesus was part of the story of what God had been doing all throughout the Old Testament, but they misunderstood his role in the story. Because of the way that they read the Old Testament, they thought that what Jesus came to earth to do was to raise up an army, kick Rome out of Israel, establish himself as the king over God's people so that they could all live happily ever after. They thought that he was coming to be a political savior who could rescue their people from slavery and bondage. And they thought, you know, once he becomes this powerful guy, we'll be like his, his cabinet, his top advisors. Things are going to be good for us too. And when Jesus got killed, his followers were all distraught because they realized that dream was dead. It was dead with Jesus in the grave. But then Jesus came back to life and again started teaching them about the kingdom of God. And they started to think, hey, this is pretty sweet. Jesus can't stay dead. If he were to raise up an army and go fight against the Romans, it doesn't matter how many times they kill him because he'll just keep coming back to life. He can't be stopped. This is awesome. And so they said, hey, Jesus, is this the time now when you're going to get that army together and you're going to come and you're going to kick out the Romans and you're going to set up this new kingdom of Israel so that we can all live happily ever after with you as our king? And he said no, which was a, a bit surprising to them. But he told them that he had a job for them to do because the story wasn't over yet. The story was going to continue. And so he promised his disciples that he would send a helper to them, the Holy Spirit, who would guide them as they followed him. And he said to them, wait in Jerusalem 
until the Holy Spirit comes. And then once you get the Holy Spirit, your job will be to spread the word about me to the entire world. And then he ascended to heaven and just left them on their own. And so a few days go by, they're waiting in Jerusalem, like he told them to do. And all of a sudden one day they're gathered in one house and this sound like a mighty rushing wind sweeps through. Flames of fire appear all around them and they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And this noise of the wind coming through was really, really loud, apparently, because a crowd of thousands of people heard the commotion and came to hear what was going on. You know, in like the most severe typhoon 10s, when you like hear the wind blowing through and you're like, that's crazy what's going on here. It was probably louder than that because thousands of people heard it and they started to wonder what's going on here. All these people are speaking in our languages so we can understand them, even though we come from all around the world. And as they started to wonder what was happening, Peter stood up and he started to preach to them this sermon about Jesus. And both from the content of the sermon and from the way that this story and passage unfolds, we see that the story of God's work in this world isn't over. It hasn't morphed into something totally different from what it was before. It's continuing. And yes, it's a new chapter in the story, but it's part of the same story. And the first place we see this is in Peter's words. So Peter stands up as everyone's curious about what's going on. Everyone's confused. And he tells them, if you really believe the Old Testament, which it was a Jewish crowd, they they would have all believed the Old Testament. But he says to them, essentially, if you really believe the Old Testament, what you're seeing right now shouldn't be too surprising to you. Because actually the prophet Joel said that this was going to happen. And then he has this long quote from the prophet Joel in the Old Testament saying, one day God's going to send the Holy Spirit to the world. And when that happens, people are going to prophesy and they're going to have visions and dreams and do miracles. And on that day, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now notice what's really significant here. Peter doesn't stand up and say to this Jewish crowd, you know, all that Old Testament stuff that you were taught as a kid. Well, you can forget about it because Jesus is so much better. Let me tell you about him. No, he actually says, you know all that Old Testament stuff you learned as a kid? It was talking about Jesus and what he was coming to do. Remember it, trust in it, realize where it was pointing you all along. And and so he keeps going with the Old Testament. He quotes a Psalm where David prophesies that God will raise Jesus from the dead. And and he essentially says, you know, we, we all know David wrote this but he's dead. We can go visit his tomb if we want to. We know that he's still in there. It can't be about him. It's about Jesus. And then he quotes another prophecy from David about Jesus' resurrection and ascension. In point after point after point of his sermon, Peter is emphasizing the fact the story of God's work in the world is not over. It hasn't fundamentally changed so much that there's this discontinuity between the old and the new. No, the story of God's work in the world, it's continuing just like it always has, directly in line with everything the Old Testament said would happen. God is still at work to set the world right the way that it's supposed to be. And he's been promising to do this ever since the first pages of of the Bible when sin first entered the world. And yes, because of Jesus, we now know how the story is going to end and it's awesome, but the story isn't over. We're still in it. It's still continuing. And so we see that in the content of Peter's sermon, but we also see it. It's not just the sermon that shows us the story isn't over. It's also the, the way that this whole scene unfolds. You know, if you're 
if you're a good Jewish reader reading this scene, there are so many references back to the Old Testament that you would be catching if you're reading it carefully. It's sort of like, you know, if you're on Wikipedia and you're reading the article and it talks about something where there's another Wikipedia article about that topic, the word shows up in blue because it's a hyperlink. And so what, if you're reading about World War II and it's talking about uh, the different, like President uh, Roosevelt, his name will show up in blue because you can click on that and it'll take you to an entirely other page about President Roosevelt. So the Bible is full of hyperlinks kind of, that are supposed to function like that. They'll, they'll write about something and you are expected by the authors to know your Bible well enough that when you read this, you're like, oh, that's like that scene back in the book of Genesis, or that's like that scene back in the book of Joshua. And obviously you're going to catch more of these the more you read the Bible. But this passage right here is full of hyperlinks back to the Old Testament. If, if this story was a Wikipedia page, half the page would be blue because it's just pointing us back all over the place. So a couple examples. First, in the Old Testament, wind and fire are pictures of God's presence. So like Ezekiel 37, God brings the, the prophet Ezekiel to this valley of dry bones. They're all dead. And God says, can these dry bones live? And Ezekiel's like, God, only you know that. And God tells Ezekiel, preach to the bones and they're going to come back to life, showing that God's word gives life. And as Ezekiel starts to preach to the bones, you know what his sermon is? he calls for the wind to come from all the different directions and bring life to the dead bones because the wind in this passage is a picture of God's presence and God's work. And then in Exodus 3, we have Moses. He's out in the wilderness looking after sheep and he sees this bush that's on fire, but not burning up. And he's like, what on earth is going on here? And he goes to the bush and God starts speaking to him from the bush. And it turns out that the fire doesn't consume the bush that's there because the fire is a picture of God's presence being there. Now we come to Acts chapter two and what do we see? A sound like a mighty rushing wind blowing through the house. And as it does, all of these people appear like they're on fire, but aren't burning up. By the way, if you've ever seen a picture of the day of Pentecost and it's got like one little candle flame above, it probably wasn't like that. It probably looked like the burning bush where it was like, these people are on fire, but they're not burning up. This story is full of imagery that's pointing us back to the ways God worked in the Old Testament and showing us God is still at work. He's doing the same things. He's continuing the same story. The story isn't over. Or one more Old Testament hyperlink to show that this story is continuing, not breaking off. You notice that here in this passage, there's people from all around the known world. We have three different continents represented in the crowd that's here on this day. And they're from all over the world. They're gathered in Jerusalem. And as the Christians start speaking, everyone hears them speaking in their own languages. Now, if you know your Old Testament, does this remind you of any stories from the Old Testament, but in reverse? At the Tower of Babel, all the people of the earth were living in one area. They were all speaking the same language. They were all united in rebellion against God, trying to build this tower to heaven so they could make a name for themselves apart from God. And to stop them from succeeding in their rebellion, God steps in. He confuses their languages. He scatters them throughout the world so they can't work together in rebellion against him anymore. And what's happening right here? That whole scene has just been reversed. People from all around the world have come together and they, despite the fact that they speak all these different languages from their childhood, strangers and foreigners start speaking all these languages so that they can understand. 
God's essentially showing that human rebellion split the world. It it divided you from one another. It brought confusion. But through Jesus and the salvation he brings, I'm working to undo the effects of sin. Where there's separation, I'm bringing things back together. Where there's confusion, I'm bringing order. Jesus is bringing clarity to the confusion of our world. The whole way the day of Pentecost plays out shows the story is not over. God is still at work in our world. He's still continuing the work that he's been doing from the beginning. And yes, we know how it's going to end now, but the story isn't over yet. And not only is it not over, but we have a part to play in it. Which brings us to our second point. We have a part to play. You know, it it might seem like since Jesus has already won this ultimate victory over sin, there's not really much left for us to do. As Christians, are we just stuck in no man's land once we trust in Jesus, just sort of waiting till we die and go to heaven to be with Jesus so we have something worthwhile to do? The story of Pentecost shows us the answer to that question is no. We're not just stuck here in no man's land waiting to die. God has given us very important work to do here and now today. See, on Pentecost, the the Holy Spirit, he falls on the apostles. A crowd hears this rushing noise of the wind that gathers around. And and like we were just saying, the whole crowd hears these Christians telling the mighty works of God in their own languages and dialects. Not Not just their own language, but their own dialects. So not just like Chinese, but Mandarin or Cantonese or Hokkien. Like that's, that's the type of specificity that God puts here in these languages. And it's amazing because everyone's hearing these Christians talk about the mighty works that God has done in the world. And notice how the crowds respond. Do they instantly trust in Jesus and believe that he's the savior? No, they're confused. They're like, what's going on here? They start asking, what does this mean? Some start making fun of the apostles and saying they're, they're probably drunk. But realize what that means for our role as Christians today. This crowd is faced with a miraculous work of God. They're, they're literally watching a miracle happen and listening to it as they hear people who've never heard their languages before start speaking them fluently. God is showing them how great he is and he's using this miracle to tell them about all the great things he's done. And the unbelieving world doesn't know what to do with that. If you are a Christian, the people around you who don't know Jesus need your help to understand who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Like that's why Peter stands up and starts preaching them. He's giving them clarity and telling them exactly what Jesus did and why he did it so that they can believe. And it's great. Even after Peter preaches an entire sermon telling them about Jesus, they still don't know what to do. They come to him and they're like, what do we do? We're convinced that Jesus is the Lord and Christ, like you've said, but, but we don't know how to respond properly to him in light of that. And Peter tells them, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are a Christian, don't believe the lie that since Jesus has done everything necessary to save us, there's nothing left for you to do in God's plan. God doesn't leave us here on earth as Christians between the time we trust in him and the time we die just so we can waste our time waiting. No, he has an important job for us because the world around us doesn't know him. The world around us doesn't know how great Jesus' love for them is. The world around us is lost and on a path towards eternity apart from God if they don't hear the good news about Jesus. And if you're here today and you haven't trusted in Jesus yet, I encourage you to trust him today. But if you're a Christian, God has left us here as witnesses to tell the unbelieving world around us about him. That's actually the role that Jesus assigns his disciples in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. He says, you will be my witnesses. A witness 
You can think of it like in court. A witness is someone who's seen something happen or, or heard something who comes and tells the judge and jury about what they saw or heard so that they can make an informed decision in their judgment. And obviously for the original disciples, they were there. They were eyewitnesses to what had happened with Jesus. They could bear testimony about exactly what they had seen and heard. For us, we aren't eyewitnesses, but we have their eyewitness testimony that we can continue sharing with the world around us so that they can believe. If you're a Christian, you and I have a part to play in the work God is continuing to do in the world. Our role is to bear witness to Jesus to the people around us. We bear witness to our friends and family and coworkers and neighbors who don't know Jesus so that they can trust in him. We also bear witness to our friends and family and neighbors and coworkers who do know Jesus because sometimes we all need reminders. We all need encouragement that, that what we know is true is actually true. And having other people bear witness to us and remind us of that truth is so powerful. It's essential. It's important. God calls us as his followers to do it. And just to guard against one potential overcorrection, I'm not saying we should quit our jobs, just go stand on the street corners and just like preach to people all day long as they walk past on the streets. No, living as witnesses also means, you know, we keep doing our jobs and we do them as if we're doing them for God, not for men. It, It means we look for practical ways to love and serve the people around us. It means we model for the unbelieving world around us what their lives could look like if they trust in Jesus themselves. By doing that, we're actually making belief plausible to them. We're we're showing them that it is a realistic option for them. And there will be times where it's essential to actually speak words to others about Jesus in addition to our actions. It's not that our actions make our words unnecessary or vice versa. It's that our actions give us a platform so people will listen when we speak and our words give meaning to our actions. Here's what I mean. Words without actions are empty and hollow. If, if people never see us living out the things that we say are true, they're going to really question how deeply we believe them ourselves. And if, if they don't think we believe them ourselves, why should they bother listening to us? By showing them through our actions that we really believe it, we encourage them to believe it and live it too. But while words without actions are empty and hollow, actions without words are meaningless. And I'm not saying that in the sense of them being worthless. I'm saying in the sense that just like in this passage, there's a great miracle happening and no one understands what it means. In order to understand what it needs, means, they need someone to stand up and speak these words to them to explain it. The gospel is first and foremost, good news. News that people need to have explained to them if they're gonna believe it. And so as Christians, our everyday lives become opportunities for us to do the important work that God has us here for in our actions and in our words. The fact that Jesus is the Savior doesn't mean that we're unimportant. God has an essential role for us as his followers to play during our time on earth, but we can't do it on our own. That brings us to our third point. We need help. See, the third wrong belief we could take in relation to God's work in the world today is to believe that since God still has work for us to do, we must have the power within ourselves to do it, which on some level would seem to make sense, right? Like, would we really expect God to to give us a job that's beyond our ability to do? But again, Acts chapter two shows us that if we're thinking this way, we're wrong. Peter was one of the greatest most powerful and impactful leaders in the history of the church. Like if there was anyone who had the power within themselves to do great things for God through their own power, it was probably like Peter or Paul, right? Like if you look through the Bible after Jesus, they have two of the most powerful, impactful ministries there are. And yet think about Peter. 
Just a few weeks before the day of Pentecost, Jesus is arrested. And while Jesus is on trial, Peter, not once, not twice, but three times, lied about the fact that he had ever met Jesus. Peter, this powerful, world-changing man, was powerless, completely powerless, even in front of a lowly slave girl who had absolutely no influence in that society. Peter did not have the power in himself to stand for Jesus. And if Peter, this great pillar of the church, this great leader, didn't have the power in himself to stand for Jesus, how much is that going to be true on an even greater level for normal people like you and me? We have no chance of standing for Jesus on our own power. But look what happens to Peter on the day of Pentecost. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And after being filled with the Holy Spirit, he is empowered and transformed. He stands up and delivers one of the most powerful sermons ever delivered. Like 3,000 people trusted in Jesus because of this one sermon. That is a powerful sermon. And in this sermon, he is directly confrontational in a way that most of us would find deeply uncomfortable. Like, look at the types of things he says in this sermon. Remember, he's preaching this crowd to thousands of people in Jerusalem just a few weeks after Jesus was killed by an angry mob in Jerusalem, right? Some of these people in the crowd listening to him would almost certainly have been part of that angry mob that was calling for Pilate to kill Jesus. In a very real sense, he is preaching to the people who killed Jesus. He knows from firsthand experience that this crowd is capable of turning into a murderous, angry mob very, very quickly. Now, with that in mind, if you were preaching this sermon, how would you frame it? Would you try to avoid saying anything upsetting? I think I would. Would you want to steer clear of topics that could lead to a riot? Probably. Would you maybe want to focus on a more positive and uplifting sermon, so sermon topic than the fact that your audience is full of murderers? I might, yes. But that's not Peter's approach. Look what he says in verses 22 through 24. This is incredible. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up. He says, God gave Jesus these miracles and signs and wonders. So you know that Jesus really came from him. You saw these miracles. You know that Jesus really came from God. And how did you respond to him? You killed him. You killed God's messenger. Like you, you, this crowd that Peter is speaking to right now, you killed him. And how did God feel about your actions? He completely, 100% opposed what you did. He opposed what you did so deeply that he reversed the course of nature and rose Jesus from the dead. He undid your work because he hated it so much. Can you think of a harsher message that you could deliver to this crowd at this time? I don't think I can, but Peter could because he didn't stop there. Look what he says in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He's not giving up. Like here, he, he refers to Jesus as Lord. In the Old Testament, that's language that would refer to God alone. And then Christ is the promised one. The Old Testament has been promising the entire way God's going to send to rescue his people. And so Peter's telling the crowd, Jesus was God. Jesus was the promised messenger that you have been waiting for all along, and you killed him. In case anyone missed his first comments about how they were murderers of God's messenger, he's just reinforcing it and repeating it. So 
it can really sink in. The, the terrified, powerless Peter from the night of Jesus' arrest is totally gone. He doesn't exist anymore. In his place is this fearless and bold man who cannot be frightened into backing down by anything or anyone. And how does this transformation happen? It's by going to the local bookstore and finding the best book in the self-help section and reading through it to learn some cool life lessons? No. Is it by staring himself in the mirror every morning and giving a pep talk? You are a strong and confident man. No, not at all. Is it by enrolling in a course that teaches him how to unleash the beast within? No, it's by being empowered by a power from outside himself that totally transforms him in the process. Peter, in and of himself, left to his own power, would have stayed the powerless coward who lied again and again to the lowest servants about knowing Jesus. But Peter, empowered by the Holy Spirit, became a force to be reckoned with. So what does that mean for you and me? It means you and I don't have the power in ourselves to do the work that God called us to do. At best, we're like Peter on the night of Jesus' arrest. We're scared, we're self-protecting, we're afraid for others to learn that we have anything to do with Jesus. But God doesn't leave us on our own. He gives us the gospel, the good news that Jesus died to bring us into our family and Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead, conquering death forever, which means if we trust in him, we are eternally secure. And God sends the Holy Spirit to empower us so we can be more like Peter on Pentecost than Peter denying Jesus. So we can have the, the Holy Spirit speaks to us to give us full assurance of the realities that are true of us in the gospel. The Holy Spirit empowers us to be bold and confident for who we are in Christ, not afraid of how others are going to think of us because of our faith. And I realize that sounds really great. We're not going to live in the fullness of that power every single day, right? Like that's the reality of living in a broken world. So if you're not there yet, don't get down on yourself. Don't get discouraged. Even Peter had bad days. We learn in Galatians 2 that despite how much he knew about the gospel, despite how powerful he was, he started acting in racist ways in one point because he was afraid what others would think of him if he didn't. But again, that wasn't the end of the story for him. He repented of his sin. God continued to use him in powerful ways. Bad days for us where we're not living in the fullness of that power, they don't mean God's abandoned us. They're opportunities for us to repent and turn to Jesus again and once again experience that amazing grace that he has for us. God has not left us alone, dependent on our own power to serve him. He sent his Holy Spirit to empower us for the work that he has called us to do. The story of the Bible it's not over yet. We're still living in it. God is still continuing the story today, doing the same work that he's been doing from the very beginning. He still has a role for you and me to play in that work, a very important role, the role of telling the world around us about who he is so they can also trust in him. And on our own, we cannot do that work. But God hasn't left us alone. He sent the Holy Spirit to empower us so that we can do exactly what he has called us to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who's at work in our world, who's always been at work in the world, that you don't change, that you love people and want to see us rescued from the deadly impact of our sin. God, I pray that you would give us a vision for this work that you've called us to do, a heart to serve and love others and tell them about you. Pray that you would empower us with your Holy Spirit, help us to be filled by your Spirit each day so that we can do the things that you've called us to in the way that you've called us to do them, God. Make us a powerful for force for your kingdom in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.